Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 80th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. I'm really excited to do this year, Maddie. I feel like this is one, if not your ultimate white whale of an Oscar year. This is. If there were a year, like there are many things, obviously, that I have strong opinions about over the course of the Academy Awards history. But this is one that I have been complaining about to anyone who would listen for the last 14 years since this happened in 2007. So I came ready to talk. I feel like I have spent cumulative hours, if not days, listening to you complain I about hope this. That days. It's probably not days, but it's certainly hours. Yeah, probably. And and that was before you had seen any of the movies in question. So all will be no revealed for that. It's okay. <laughs> so I'm excited to to yeah, talk about this year with you. I know this is a this is a biggie. And honestly, it's a big year for Phil. It this is. is quite a year. I would say also what makes this exciting is it's the first year that we were not just alive for, but like of movie watching age for when yes, this that happened. we've covered. So we're aware of it, of the films, like having watched them at the time and having right. opinions at the time. Yeah. So some of this, too, it's interesting to go back and revisit things that we saw that came out in 2007 and have memory of the experience of seeing it in real time or approximately real time. And then also, you know a little bit of historical perspective. So uh, a bit of a different thing for us. It's fun to rewatch a movie you haven't seen in a while and see if your opinions have changed about it or not. So that's always exciting. But yeah, I I will say this was a good, whether we'll get into how we feel about the actual nominees, but cumulatively, I think 2007 was a very good year for film. There's a lot of really interesting movies out there from a lot of different genres that that should be talked about because... What a good year. It was. I had a good time for the most part watching these films, but we'll get into it. So, yes, it's 2007. What's happening in the world? Where are we? Well, we are just about to slip into a terrible recession, but we don't know about it yet. So times are still good. We're in like a housing (laughs) boom. It's crazy. Yeah, the the craziest housing boom. Who could have known that it was a bubble? Um. So, yes, yeah, sort of the pre-recession times. George W. Bush is still president, though his era is coming to a close. Barack Obama has announced that he is running for the presidency, but obviously it's still, you know, the year before the election. It's a big year for us personally. We graduated from high school in this year and started college in this year. So it was a wild time for us, which is funny because the context of that does affect this because I remember seeing some of these movies in the places that I was. Like I remember watching There Will Be Blood at college with friends and I remember watching No Country for Old Men on Christmas break with my family, you know, like Mm -hmm. I feel like I could place all of that. Yeah, I have a similar experience of like, oh, yeah, I saw that in the in the two picture theater we had in town. Yeah. Fun times. Well, that's fun for us. So that's sort of the vibe of 2007. So we will go through just a quick overview of what the nominees are. So to begin, in alphabetical order, the first nominee is Atonement, which is a World War II period drama about how a mistake can alter the course of many lives. It stars James McAvoy, Kira Knightley, and a little baby Saoirse Ronan. 
And it's directed by Joe Wright with a screenplay by Christopher Hampton, nominated for seven Academy Awards, and it won one for Best Original Score. Next is Juno, a coming-of-age story about a teen pregnancy. It stars Elliot Page, Michael Sarah, Jason Bateman. It's directed by Jason Reitman, written by Diablo Cody, and it was nominated for four Academy Awards and won one Best Original Screenplay. The third is Michael Clayton a legal thriller about a fixer who's targeted by an agribusiness after a lawyer at his firm threatens to go public with some damning information. Starring George Clooney and Tilda Swinton, this was directed, I believe his directorial debut, and written by Tony Gilroy, nominated for seven Academy Awards, and it won one for Best Supporting Actress. For Tilda Swinton. Mm -hmm. Next is No Country for Old Men, a neo-Western thriller about a man who gets mixed up in the aftermath of a drug deal gone awry. Stars Tommy Lee Jones, Javier Bardem, and Josh Brolin. It was written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Nominated for eight, won four. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, Javier Bardem, and Best Adapted Screenplay. And finally, There Will Be Blood, a period character drama about the rise of an oil tycoon. Starring Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Dano. Directed and written by Paul Thomas Anderson. Nominated for eight Academy Awards, and it won two, Best Actor for Daniel Day-Lewis, and Best Cinematography. A lot of writer-directors this year. Yeah, it's a, it's a year of auteurs. Mm-hmm. But none of these films were in the top highest-grossing movies of the year. Correct. These are the arty choices, but the popular choices at the box office were, uh, in order of gross, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, which is the third in that series. Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, Spider-Man 3, Shrek the Third, and Transformers. Ah, the year of threequels. <laughs> Not just those. The Bourne Ultimatum, also the third of the series, came out this year as well. Yep. Yep. A lot of threequels. I don't think we have too much else other than the films we're going to get into. And as we mentioned already, 2007, what a year for cinema. A lot of good stuff coming out this year. After we talk about the nominees, we'll get into a lot more of the other things that came out this year. All right, so let's let's dig in. I think we're going to have a lot to say about all these movies, so I'm excited. So what won this year was No Country for Old Men. At the time, I think people felt it was a fine winner. We found a bunch of, like, end-of-the-year best-of lists, and it topped some, and it didn't top others. I think this was yeah. a pretty competitive year in terms of what people felt was the best picture. And I would say that sort of mirrors the historical consensus, I think, probably... People who liked that it won at the time still feel that way. And people who thought other things should have won still feel that way. I don't feel like history has, you know, come to any one particular conclusion on yes. this year. One of these has not come out in front in the last 14 or so years. I guess that could still happen. We'll find out. Yeah, we'll come back in 20 years and see. Okay, so we're going to get into, I guess, our thoughts about all these pictures and the way we do this uh, a little confusingly, but it's our That's system. We like it. Uh, is we're going to say, would we be, have been mad if X won? So were we mad that the best picture that won one? Would we have been mad if any of the other nominees had won? What does that look like? And I think last episode, I mentioned that there's a couple different ways you can approach this. I don't know if I'm going to take a different approach every time. I think I am because my approach is different this year than it yeah. was last year. This year, I think as we said at the top, had a good time. A lot of really excellent films made this year, but I do have a strong sense of what I feel was the best picture for this year. And so, yeah, anything else would have made me mad. So yeah. that's that's what I'm going with. So I'm going to say, yes, I would have been mad to films I truly love and think are excellent. So just like stick with us through the conversation. Yes, we didn't hate these movies. 
but we each have our own strong opinion about what should have won. So that's what we're going with this year. I think yes. you know what it is with historical separation, like the years that we were not born for and that we were mm-hmm. watching a lot of movies for the first time. I think it's easier for me to be like, well, all the critics said it was so great. So like, who am I to be mad about it? Whereas yeah. this when I like I have my own strong opinions and I'm like, I am mad about it and I'm not going to be shy. You know, It was there and it made me yeah. angry then. And I'm still mad about it. Guys. Right, exactly. Yeah. OK. So, No Country for Old Men. Were you mad about it? Yes, very. Also, yes. <laughs> okay, well, then we'll go through our other nominees yeah. in alphabetical order. Atonement, would you have been mad? Yes. Yes. Juno? Yes. Yes. Michael Clayton? Yes. Yes. There Will Be Blood? No. Yes. I thought you were going to say that. I'm excited yeah. for this conversation. Okay, so you'll find out what happens when I say yes to everything. After we get through all the movies. Well, yeah. So what we do is let's we would sort of quickly talk about the things that we both think should not have won Mm -hmm. and then get into our arguments for ones we disagree on, which we do have one. And then we'll get into anything else that we think should be nominated. Clearly, you have an answer for that. I do. First, let's talk about the double yeses. Let's start with Atonement. This is a movie I had not seen before we Mm -hmm. did the prep for this. And you, I think, probably saw it at the time, right? You. I don't know if I saw this in theaters. I saw it at least close to when it came out. And I realized I did rewatch it for the podcast. Mm -hmm. I think that was the fifth time I've seen this movie. I've watched this movie quite a bit. I like it a lot. Uh, See, I wrote in my notes that I was glad I had not already seen it because I don't think I would have wanted to watch it again. Interesting. So we have a very different opinion on this movie. Okay. So I don't know who should begin on this. Do we start with the person who liked it more? I think you can start. I think that's fine. And I'll I'll come in with my my thoughts. My thoughts on Atonement are this. It is beautiful, beautifully shot. Mm -hmm. The actors are great, very well acted. I think it's very well written. Did I enjoy watching it? No, not at all. (laughs) I struggle with stories that feel like tragedy for tragedy's sake. Like it's just a a misunderstanding that leads to all of this horrible stuff. And I'm just left watching it like, but why? It's so sad. For what reason? You know, like that sort of feeling. So that is not a type of story that personally appeals to me, though I do think this movie is very well made. So, yeah, like I mentioned, I've seen this movie a bunch of times. I think one of them was right around the time Dunkirk came out because (laughs) I did not connect in my mind the many times that I'd watched this before, the few times that the beach scene was Dunkirk because I didn't know what Dunkirk was. And so, yeah, I think overall it's a really Again, beautifully made, beautifully shot film. I think I also watched this after watching like Michael Clayton and There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men. So I was like, ooh, colors. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, the, I really enjoy the use of green in this movie. I'm surprised that Joe Wright didn't get a Best Director nod because that long take when they're on the beach Great. at Dunkirk is amazing. And I also appreciated because this was a critique of Dunkirk, which I loved. And we'll talk about it whenever we get to that year that yeah. they had a person of color in the, their merry band because. Also an Ozzy. Yeah. So I was excited. Yeah. I've forgotten about that, but I was like, oh, mm-hmm. nice. Way to go, guys. People of color do exist in the past. They Isn't do. that shocking? I love James McAvoy in this movie. There's something so like perfectly sweet about mm-hmm. little James McAvoy. Like you look at him and you're just like, I want to pinch his little cheeks. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's beautiful in this movie. And yeah. I'm kind of sad he stopped. Like he did this one and Last King of Scotland in pretty close succession. And then he's moved on to do like less sort of prestige pictures. And I don't know why. I don't know you know, what happened. But I wish he'd do more of that. Well, he got sucked a little bit into the X-Men world. So he, he did. did into those... Uh, 
you know, crazy yeah. superhero things and they don't let you out. That's true. Saoirse Ronan is great. This is an early role mm-hmm. for her, obviously, because she's a child. This was the beginning of my long journey with Benedict Cumberbatch, and he is the grossest, creepiest He's so fucking man gross. <laughs> ever. Benedict Cumberbatch, creepy. Yeah. So I didn't watch Sherlock for several years because this was how he existed in my brain. And I was yeah. like, yikes. That's fair. Also, I'll mention little baby Alfie Allen, who is from Game of Thrones, which you haven't seen, but Mm -hmm. he's delightful. And little Juno Temple, who now is in Ted Lasso. And she's also delightful in this. So great cast all around, I think. So those, yeah, are kind of small thoughts. I like the sound design in this movie. I like the incorporation of the typewriter into the score. Mm -hmm. But I think what I, I like about this movie is a couple of things. So sort of conversely to your point of, you know, like this one misunderstanding. You're like, oh, why? But I think because James McAvoy is in a vulnerable class, that does resonate with me because that's an idea that I was also raised with as a person of vulnerable class. It's like one mistake really can ruin your life. Like a false accusation can derail everything because Mm -hmm. you don't have the cultural cachet to recover from that one mistake. And so he's, you know, in a lower social class, so they just believe he would be capable of something that terrible. I guess we didn't really say what the movie is about. We oh, usually yeah. do. <laughs> so um, he's falsely accused of rape. Through a series of misunderstandings, Saoirse Ronan ha- is this child who wants to be a writer. She has this very active imagination. And she sees some things that she doesn't really understand because she's so young. And there's this flirtation happening between James McAvoy and Kira Knightley, who are both interested in each other. But Sersha sees them from afar and thinks that he is being inappropriate about yes. Kira Knightley. And so she's primed to believe that he is not a good person. And she also has a bit of a girlish crush on him. And there's an element of jealousy, I think, yes. in this also. So they all go out to search for these two little boys. And Sersha Ronan sees someone raping her cousin and... I didn't remember, because I've seen the movie so many times, that when she initially is out in the field, you don't see the man's face. You don't know who it is. And she says that it's James McAvoy. And spoiler alert, it's creepy Benedict Cumberbatch. Cumberbatch. So that element resonated with me. But I also like the meta narrative in the movie about like the role of storytelling in our lives and, and what stories should and shouldn't do. And, you know, I think there's a role for stories that give you hard truths. And there's a role for stories that don't and give you happy endings. And I kind of did like the exploration of that at the end of this movie. But yeah, this movie makes me cry every time I watch it. I cried multiple times in this film. I think I cried. I must have cried. But you know, they were frustrated tears. (laughs) Yeah. So I like this movie a lot. That doesn't mean I think it should have won Best Picture. And I think it's very good, but do not personally enjoy it. On to the next. Juno. In alphabetical order, Juno. What are your thoughts? This was the film I think I was most interested to revisit out of any of these. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't really need to revisit Atonement. Again, I've seen it. You had seen it many times. But I haven't seen Juno since it came out in theaters. And I think maybe I have watched it more than once in my life. Mm -hmm. But they were all closer to when it came out. Like, I, I definitely think I have not seen this movie in a decade. So I really wasn't sure how it was going to play. Because when you think of Juno, you think of that really stylized dialogue. Super stylized. Yeah. That Diablo Cody script is so particular. Yes. And, you know, I think 
in 2007, it was super fresh. And I would I would be so curious to show this to like a teen today and see I can't how they even reacted imagine, yeah. to it. Because there's been so many things like Juno that were made after Juno, right? It's kind of gotten played yeah, out. Well, it had a big cultural impact. Yeah. But I think if you weren't there in 2007, you don't remember that we were like, ooh, this is a revelation. This is so this is different. A- yeah. yeah. But it's heaviest in like the first 15 or 20 minutes that really stylized dialogue. It does sort of fade out. I had yeah. the same experience. The, the beginning few scenes of the movie, you're like, whoa, this is quite the it's like they're speaking another language it's the (laughs) the rain wilson of it all yeah the rain wilson stuff you're like wow this is quite the dialect they have and then i think part of it is you sort of get used to it but it definitely also lessens as you meet the other characters and like there's none of that with the jason bateman and the you know like all of the later characters don't really talk like those characters but you know it's a nice story i also cry watching this movie yeah she seems like a pretty realistic 16 year old girl i like all the characters i love her parents jk simmons Uh, and uh, allison janney and jk simmons are like if you if i could pick a perfect character actor couple the ideal character actor couple it is allison janney and jk simmons come on i also was really excited to rewatch and see how i felt about the jason bateman stuff because i always Mm. have thought that was a very interesting turn the way that that storyline is handled so i we again should say what the movie is about we keep forgetting sure so elliot page plays a 16 year old who sleeps with her best friend well one of her best friends michael Sarah, and gets pregnant and at first is going to go get an abortion, but shows up at the abortion clinic, runs into a person from her school who is protesting and saying all babies want to get born. (laughs) And she (laughs) tells her that the baby has fingernails, which I really don't think is true at that point in her pregnancy. Right, but she gets overwhelmed. Yeah, she gets overwhelmed by the situation, goes in, can't do it. And is like, you know what? I obviously don't want to raise a child, but I should find another option, have the baby, and I'll like find someone to adopt it. So in the the want ads of the paper, the penny saver, the penny saver. She finds this couple, Jason Bateman and Jennifer Garner, who are this perfect looking suburban, you know, beautiful, yuppie couple Mm -hmm. that she goes to meet. And then at first she sort of thinks Jennifer Garner is like kind of a stick in the mud, stuck up lady. And she gets along with Jason Bateman because he's this cool, (laughs) cool, but like frustrated rocker who plays guitar and was in a band and, and Judo's character is really into music. And so they bond about it. And at first it's sort of like, oh, like sweet that they have a connection. And then it becomes this thing where like, it's inappropriate. It's inappropriate. They get a little too close in ways that they should not be. But part of it is it's clear from the beginning that Jennifer Garner and Jason Bateman's relationship is not going to work. Like they're mm-hmm. at a point in their marriage where she wants him to just grow up and forget about this band stuff. And he feels like he's probably not ready to have kids, but she's always wanted kids. So I guess we're doing this. And you're like, that's not a recipe for success. So yeah, Juno being this kid doesn't really have a sense of the dynamics of their marriage and or her relationship with Jason Bateman or her relationship with Jason Bateman. And he ends up deciding to leave his wife and Juno is not pleased because she wants the baby to have this perfect idyllic life. But she ends up realizing Jennifer Garner actually is going to be like this perfect mother that she wants for her kid. So she decides to give her the baby anyway. And Mm -hmm. Who knows what happens to Jason Bateman? I love that he just sort of disappears at the end. He moves into a loft in the city and you're like, okay, whatever. <laughs> Go live your alone life, guy. So yeah, that, and then Juno and what's Michael Sarah's character name? Bleaker. 
Bleaker. Yeah, Polly, Polly Bleaker. They realize that they are in love and get together at the end. So yeah, I thought that the Jason Bateman storyline still played in an interesting, mm-hmm. cool way that I liked. Yeah. Well, again, I think that's part of the realism of her as a 16-year-old girl. As her mm-hmm. stepmom tries to tell her, you know, it's inappropriate for you to be hanging out with this adult man. And she just doesn't understand why that might be the case. Yeah. Well, and she's like, we just, we get along and we're interested in music. Like, what does age have to do with it? And you're like, there's just a lot going on here, Juno, that you're yeah. not really understanding. So yeah, still it's super good. fun, I think. I think it works. I think if the stylized nature of the dialogue bothers you, if you can get through the first 15 minutes, it it really calms down. Yeah. And otherwise, it's just a really solid coming of age movie. Yeah, totally. All right, let's move on to Michael Clayton. Michael Clayton. This is a movie that I'm pretty sure zero people saw in 2007. I don't feel like this was a super watched thing. I remember even at the time being surprised when it was nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. So obviously I had not seen it until we did the prep for this. You had not seen it until we did the prep for this. My thoughts are it was fine. That's what I wrote too. I went, it's fine. It's not poorly made by any means it's just not very memorable in any way I think Tony Gilroy is giving the actors monologues stuff for them to do but not in a way where it sticks with you and the storyline was not that innovative or interesting to me the case is sort of whatever I, I felt like there were elements that never really added up to anything Again, I've forgotten to explain what it's about. George Clooney plays Michael Clayton, who is a fixer, like a cleanup guy at this very Mm -hmm. exclusive law firm in New York. So he doesn't actually litigate the cases. He's there when there's some problem, sticky, illegal thing they don't know how to solve with the clients. And he goes in to fix it. And so he has a relationship with Tom Wilkinson's character, who sort of has a nervous breakdown because he stops taking his medication in a deposition and goes off the rails ranting about the case he's been yeah. working on. They've been working on this large, lengthy, like $6 Class billion dollar suit. Like they're defending yeah. an agribusiness giant company against a class action suit because, of course, the agribusiness has been like, you know, poisoning the water and making people sick yeah. as they are wont to do. And so, yeah, Tom Wilkinson stops taking his medication, freaks out about it, like takes off his clothes in the middle of a deposition and the law firm needs to prove to the agribusiness that they should keep paying them to represent them after Mm -hmm. this event. And so they send in George Clooney to take care of the situation. Tilda Swinton is in charge of the case for the company and kind of insanely feels like out of her depth with what's going on and decides to have Tom Wilkinson assassinated, which feels like a bit too far and then George Clooney figures it out she tries to kill George Clooney George Clooney in a much too simple way takes her and the business down and then everything is wrapped up nicely in a bow at the end yeah so the only reason she gets in trouble is because she tries to kill them because she kills Tom Wilkinson like the business would not have gotten in trouble Otherwise, I just find her to be really dumb. Well, she's explaining at the end, too, that the tax write-off of the settlement would have paid for itself. So if she just waited a little bit. That's what I'm saying. This is why giant businesses don't care about settling class action lawsuits because it doesn't actually hurt them. It's impossible to actually hurt them unless they do things that are provably super illegal, like murder people. (laughs) Right. So I... 
again, I thought this movie was fine, but I did have some problems with the way it was structured. So the movie starts off with something that's in the middle of really like the beginning of the third act, I guess, of the film where George Clooney's driving and he gets out of his car to go look at some horses, which I don't, I don't understand why. why he did yeah, that. It doesn't make any sense. And his car blows up and then it cuts back to four days earlier. And then we're sort of following along how we got to this point where his car blows up. But I think that undercuts the tension because when they're putting the bomb in his car, you're like, well, I know he's not going to die. I already right. saw it. And then also, right, you want a thriller to give you a sense of paranoia. I think especially this kind of thriller. And they show Tom Wilkinson being killed. And I'm like, well, why didn't you just let us not know whether he committed suicide or was murdered or whatever else? You know, we kind of understand everything that's going on. So for me, there weren't really a lot of thrills to this. Yeah, it's very thriller. linear. There were just also like strange little bits. So, you know, that I found confusing. So again, why did he get out of the car to look at those horses? Yeah, why did he get out of the car is a big question for me. Because it feels like in the moment he's driving with purpose, like he's figured something out and he needs to get somewhere. But I don't think he knows he's being followed. Well, I guess not. But it feels like he is doing something intentional because doesn't he like take a weird random turn that he wouldn't yeah, have taken normally? But I don't know why. But it's just because he was looking for horses. Like, I don't, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Right. But then I also felt all there was a bunch of subplot stuff with George Clooney and his his alcoholic brother who he opened a bar with, which, oh, my God, <laughs> what a choice. And his brother-in-law, who's a cop. And we keep cutting away from, again, what I feel should be a propulsive something to these character moments. And they do all kind of come together, like the stuff with his kid. And it kind of all gets tied up in the neat bow at the end. And you're like, OK, but. Does that make yeah. it more powerful? I, I don't like know. That stuff never really came to anything satisfactory to me. Like, I liked that they were trying to give him all of these sort of cross pressures, right? He's got mm -hmm. the pressures at, at work because they're breathing down his neck to get Tom Wilkinson under control. But he also has all these financial pressures, which you wouldn't expect a successful lawyer to have because he owes money to the mob, basically, and needs to get that back. And so he opened a bar with an alcoholic. He opened a bar with an alcoholic, which he probably shouldn't have done. But also he's a gambling addict. So he's got that going That's on. That's true. And so I liked that he was like, they were trying to do a thing where he's torn between all of these different things and like trying to get through it all and leveraging one against the other and using his job to pay back the mob guy. He's like, I appreciated what they were trying to do. But then I was like, whatever came of that, really? He, mm -hmm. he gets himself out of debt and there's no problem there. He fixes the situation completely at the end. So he's totally fine with his bosses. And I guess his brother's still gone. But well, his brother picked him up from the airport. Or from wherever he was when his car exploded. So I guess they're mending the relationship. Oh, yeah. And then the the brother-in-law, who's the cop that he kind of got in trouble, seems also fine. Yeah. So I was just like, what was the point of any of it? I just, I didn't feel any thrills. Which no. to me makes a thriller unsuccessful. I also was <laughs> surprised that Tilda Swinton won an Oscar for this role. Like, she's right. good. I mean, she she like sweats and hyperventilates in a bathroom I guess that's like but I don't know I yeah I was pretty underwhelmed across the board by this movie and I'm not sure it should have been nominated I'm with you there <laughs> this is okay. one where I'm like I don't think this movie should have been nominated like I don't think Atonement or Juno should have won yeah but I'm not mad about them being nominated Michael Clayton I'm like this is not a movie people are going to remember in the future. It's already a movie people don't remember now. So yeah. why is it here? Okay. Well, that's all. Not all. 
we'll swing back around to our last double yes we would have been mad about it but we should talk about our yes slash no of there will be blood so i don't know who should start i think you should start I know you have a lot of feelings about this I movie. I do, but then I don't want to, to to leave you in a position where I say a bunch and then you're like, okay. So, you know, we said at the beginning that we kind of want to talk about There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men a little fluidly. I, yeah, I feel like they're sort of linked in a lot of people's ideas about this year. Yeah, I think, and again, we'll get to what my yes was, but these two are sort of the top two. Like, I, mm-hmm. I don't actually hear people talk about, like, oh, Atonement should have won. That's not yeah. a conversation. I mean, everybody here. talks about how Michael Clayton should have won, but. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so to do the reveal, right, this is what you've been complaining about for 14 years. You feel quite strongly that There Will Be Blood should have won. Yes. And I went in watching There Will Be Blood after having listened to you for 14 years. I mean, years. that's true. I couldn't have built it up any more than I had possibly already built it up. Yeah. And I will say, spoiler alert, as much as I said double yeses to both these last two movies, if I had to choose one of the nominees to win, I think I'm with you. I kind of wanted to come into this episode feeling the opposite just so we could have a fight about it. I mean, I was hoping for that as well, but (laughs) but unfortunately, we're not going to have a fight about it. Yeah, it's it's really epic. It's gorgeous. I I don't think it's 100 percent perfect. I have a couple of problems with it, which we can get into after I let you talk about it. Ooh, Paul Dano. Ooh, Paul Dano. Ooh, Paul Dano. I love the story of how he ended up being twins. That's delightful to me. My headcanon is that they are not twins. It's that he has split personality. Right. Well, so do you know the the casting background of Eli? I don't know if I do. Paul Dano was cast to play Paul Sunday, the brother who comes in and Mm -hmm. tells Daniel Plainview about the oil at his family's ranch. And they shot scenes with this other actor who was Eli and it wasn't working out. And so they gave Paul Dano four days to prep and they were like, you're Eli too. So he became twins. Fucking incredible. Crushes it. An actor lives for that sort of opportunity. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's a really happy accident because it does add this like strange layer of mystery and confusion and gamesmanship, particularly when you first meet Eli and he comes to talk to Daniel and his son. And you're like, this is weird. Is that? all do they know what's going on that scene is so perfect and daniel has this moment of like so we're pretending you're not the guy that i already met like he looks over at his son like this Mm -hmm. what's okay i guess you're eli (laughs) yeah and it is revealed later that they are two separate people because eli attacks the dad and complains about how paul sold them down the river. But I will say his dad never talks about his brother. He attacks his dad and talks That's about true. his brother. And it's like, is he really a brother? Or is he a fake guy that you constructed in your head? I think it adds this really fun layer uh, to the movie that would not have been there if it had been two separate actors. I will also say, and again, like I didn't start off by saying what There Will Be Blood is about, but Paul Sunday is my favorite character in the movie because yep. he wakes up one morning, he chooses violence. He's like, I'm going to fuck my brother over so hard. I'm going to ruin really everyone's does. life. I also love that at the end, Daniel tells Eli that he paid Paul $10,000 or something right. just to be like, fuck you, you're stupid. Your brother's much smarter than you. Love it. Love Paul Sunday. He's he really great. did choose violence. So you talk about, you talk about it and then I'll get to my minor complaints. Yes. I am ready to hear your complaints because I, here's my story of watch, rewatching these films. I obviously have rewatched There Will Be Blood in the intervening years. 
probably not in a couple of years at least. I had not rewatched No Country for Old Men since 2007. And so I was like, I've been carrying around this complaint for nearly 15 years at this point. And I was like, I'm going to have to rewatch them and have these opinions. I want to leave myself open to the possibility that I will rewatch No Country for Old Men and be like, you know what? It's actually very good. Like, I, I'm, I'm going to separate myself from this emotionally and feel okay with No Country for Old Men winning the best picture. So the way that I have been structuring my rewatches or, you know, first time watches for this podcast is I've been watching everything other than the winner first and then finishing with the best picture to be like, does all of that other stuff stack up to this? Mm-hmm. So I, the way it worked out is I ended up doing a double feature. There will be blood, no country for old men one day. Okay. And so I finished There Will Be Blood and I had my normal There Will Be Blood reaction of like, loved it, perfect, wouldn't change a frame. I would applaud for you movie if I could. I love this movie. And then I turned on No Country Roman and I still was like, you're open-minded. You're going to, to try to like this movie. And then I, watching it, felt like my memory of it from 2007 was that it was good, but not as good as There Will Be Blood. And so that's why I was mad about it. Watching mm-hmm. it this time, I was like, I think I actively don't like this movie. Okay. (laughs) My opinions haven't changed a lot, but I do think, if anything, I feel like I like No Country World Men less than I did before. So obviously that's a a teaser for when we talk about No Country World Men. But that's where I am with the two. And the reason I say that is because I love There Will Be Blood so much that I'm intrigued to hear your, you know, notes on There Will Be Blood. For me, I just am obsessed with the performances Yes, Paul Dano is incredible. <laughs> I always love Paul Dano. But Daniel Day-Lewis, like, what a genius. What a great performance. And I find the character really interesting. It's one of those movies where I, every time I watch it, I feel like I learn more about the character. It's so intricate. Mm. And I just have been tr- fascinated by not the story of a guy with a lot of ambition who gets rich, because that's not really a story that I'm that intrigued by, but his relationship with his son in particular, and then his relationship with Paul Dano's character and every time I watch it my main like why of it all is why did he decide to raise this baby like that's the turning point of like the you know creation of the entire story is that he's Mm. again I guess we should say what the movie is (laughs) yeah so There Will Be Blood is a movie about uh this guy named Daniel Plainview it starts at the turn of the century from the 1800s to the 1900s yeah when people are out prospecting for oil all in the American West. He first is a guy who's digging for gold, I think, on his own. The, first of all, the movie starts with, I think, like a 15-minute sequence with no dialogue. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. But he's digging on his own. He accidentally butts up his leg by falling into this hole and has to, like, drag himself to town carrying, a little, like, a handful of gold that he has found. But he ends up hooking up with some guys who are who are digging for oil. One of them has a baby, but no mother for the baby, which is not explained, but must be an interesting story. I assume she died or something. Yeah. And then that guy ends up dying in an accident and Daniel adopts the baby for some reason. And sort of the implication of the movie is that he adopted him as like a prop because he does end up using the kid for his sales. It's a family business. Yeah, and he goes around the country and is like, I'm Daniel Plainview and this is what I can do for you. And this is my son, H.W. Plainview, and we're a family business and blah, blah, blah. But I am always fascinated by the scene right after he has taken this baby. Well, there are two. There's a scene right when he's taking the baby and he's like holding and looking at the baby and you're sort of like, what is he thinking about this baby? 
And then there's a scene on a train where he's like letting the baby play with his mustache. And you're mm-hmm. like, this feels so like soft and not like his character for the rest of the time. So the, the dichotomy of it is really fascinating to me. But anyway, the overarching plot of the story is he starts digging for oil on his own, becomes a, a prospector. Is that what they're called? I don't know. An oil tycoon. He becomes an oil, an oil tycoon. He, yeah. He starts small, ends up finding oil, leverages it into a big business, becomes an oil tycoon, super rich at the end. And his son is with him the whole time. And they go. The Most of the movie takes place in this small town that he gets led to because of Paul Dano's character who tells him that there's oil on his family's land. He shows up there. He buys the land from them for, you know, cheaper than he should because they don't know that they have oil. And ends up buying up a bunch of stuff around this area and, like, using the money to grow the town. The way that he convinces them all that he should come be their oil guy is that he's like, we're going to build a school and we're going to, you know, have bread for your families because you don't have bread. But you're totally like, I understand why this works because the way people are living is so stark. Like, when they first go to the town, to, to the farm, they show up there and they're asking this family for, like, water and milk and bread and they're like we don't have bread we have potatoes like no no grain the soils are very here. poor yeah yeah so he comes out and he's like we're gonna irrigate the whole area we're gonna have schools for your kids we're gonna have like you know we're gonna grow the whole thing and life's gonna improve for everyone which for the most part it seems like it does but the paul dano character of eli whether or not he's a separate character <laughs> is interested in starting his own church And so the way that he convinces Eli to let him have the land is that he's going to give him like $5,000 or something to build this church that he wants to start. And so they end up being the two main, you know, antagonists to each other over the course of the movie because they keep trying to like one up each other. And I'm obsessed with the scene when they make Daniel Day-Lewis come be baptized. Like Mm -hmm. the way that Paul Dano thinks that he has like gotten one over on Paul or on Daniel Day-Lewis and he's like I'm really humiliating him here in front of all these people and Daniel Day-Lewis is thinking all the while like I will get back I just love the two of them and it ends up his son gets injured in an explosion at the Derrick because he's like playing on the Derrick and he loses his hearing and uh, they you know find a special school for him to go to where he can go learn sign language and at one point Daniel Day-Lewis well, is. So I think, not to gloss over that, but the the scene where um, he gets baptized, right? There's the, I've abandoned my boy, I've abandoned my child. And he does just like ditch him on a train. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. He 100% feels like he has abandoned his boy. Yeah. Because, yeah, the way that that works is he tries to keep, I'm, I'm trying to speed things up because there's just so much movie, but you're right. That that deserves to not be glossed over. The kid. They just send him to a school and it's all fine. He like, well, ditches the, him the on a train. The kid is deaf. And at first they're trying, to, they think like maybe his hearing will come back. They can't figure out what to do with him. And so then he has his second in command find a school that will take him. And yeah, the way that he uh, takes takes the boy to the school is the two of them get on a train. And then right before the train is about to leave, he's like, oh, I have to run into another car and grab something. And he just gets off the train and his, you know, like second in command guy shows yeah. up and sits down with HW and it's like, wow that was rough (laughs) like that was a rough time for hw but then it's great because when he comes back from the school daniel day lewis is so happy to see him and he's like hugging him and hw slaps him and you're like get him hw he deserves that shit but yeah in the in the baptism scene 
Eli is making him confess his sins on his knees just to humiliate him. And he's telling him what to say. And he's telling him to say, like, I have sinned. I have blah, blah, blah. I've abandoned my child. And so he is yelling out, like, I've abandoned my child. I've abandoned my boy. Very clearly believing that that is the case. But also thinking, I will kill you for this, Eli. And spoiler alert, he does. (laughs) But much later on. uh, So anyway, yeah, the son... Oh, his son guy shows up, says he's Daniel Day-Lewis's brother, and then they have a little bit of a, like, fun time together. Like, we're going to be brothers and have a brother business. And then it turns out that he's not actually his brother. His real brother died, and this guy took his diary and pretended to be him. And so then Daniel Day-Lewis kills that guy because of the betrayal. And things flash forward. His business has only continued to grow, but his son, who has since married... Yeah, he shows up and says to, as an adult, shows up and says to Daniel Day-Lewis that he wants to, like, not work for his dad anymore, go to Mexico, start his own business looking for oil. I think because he, like, wants his dad to respect him, right? Like, he wants to prove himself and also separate business from their relationship because the dad is so crazy about business. And Daniel Day-Lewis is like, this makes you my competitor. (laughs) And he's so furious about it. And so that's an unfortunate end to their relationship in the movie. But he's left sort of just like alone, puttering around this giant mansion. And he's been getting more and more frail over the course of the movie from the leg injury that he sustained at the beginning. And And his crippling alcoholism. His crippling alcoholism. And he's just like alone in a mansion, shooting at stuff in the mansion. And like he has his own bowling alley. Who knows what he's getting up to? But Paul Dano shows up at the end and he also clearly has fallen on some hard times and shows up to ask Daniel for money, which I got to say feels like a really dumb move, but he must be desperate. I don't know how Mm -hmm. he remembers their relationship, you know, how they left their relationship, but he shows up to ask for money. Daniel sort of like makes him humble himself while asking in the way that he did when he made him get baptized. And then in this super memorable scene explains that he doesn't need to buy the land that Paul Dano is offering him because the oil has already been drilled because he owns all of the land around it and you know drainage and he like it's just a quite flows underground so milkshake we know have a milkshake (laughs) and I have a milkshake I have a straw it's you gotta you gotta watch it's iconic Um, at this point yeah and so he Yeah, humiliates him, tells him he's not going to give him any money, and then murders him with a bowling pin, which I really feel like Eli should have seen coming, but that's just me. And then that's that's his arc. So I just think it's full of super special character moments, such great scenes. The acting is ridiculously good, and I'm a fan. But tell me your critiques. Yeah, so, you know, that's the summary of what happens. My sort of global reading of the film is... Despite what he says, this is a man who's desperate for human connection. 1,000%. That is his main driver. Yeah, that's his relationship with his son. And he sends his son away once his brother is there. And then when his brother turns out to not be his brother, that's when he brings his son back. Mm -hmm. But capitalism, there's these, you know, it's a battle between capitalism and religion. These two systems that take advantage of humans and separate them from their human connection, right? Yeah. And so, like... This is separate from my critiques, but I kind of want someone with like video editing skills to take this movie. And initially I was just like, "Ooh, it'd be great if over the last screen, 
you have, you know, him next to dead Eli Sunday with a bowling pin and you just have like a Mortal Kombat style end screen come up that says like capitalism wins fatality. But then I was like, <laughs> oh, you could do a whole thing where you have their, you know, health bars and Daniel's is capitalism and, and Eli's is religion and you can like cut together all their pissy little slap fights. Yeah. And like have the bars going down and, and then each of them 100%. Yeah. And then I love that. <laughs> Fatality at the Anybody end. So who like, has editing skills could make that happen. That sounds like I would love it so much. I was just enjoying myself thinking about it. But yeah, so that's sort of my global reading of the film. And the the complaints I have are not huge. I, I understand, I think, why you love this film so much and why people might. It is really epic. It's it's like it's big. Yeah. But like it doesn't all quite come together for me on a just a watch level. So like obviously Daniel Day Lewis is giving a performance right like oh he's yeah as he always going does. for it and it's good and I don't think he should not have won the best actor category but I think it doesn't quite fit into the film like he's the only person doing that accent no one else is doing that accent around him and it's distracting why does he talk like this when literally no one else does and I understand it's probably historically based and it's imitating something and they did research and I get it but it sticks out to me, right? It doesn't fit into the film. I don't even notice it. <laughs> I'm not discrediting you. I'm just saying like, that. that's not what I was expecting the critique to be. <laughs> right. Like that sticks out. I, I think like the score sticks out in places too. It's something I notice mm-hmm. in a way that I don't like to notice a score. There are definitely scenes where I'm like, oh, the score is doing like all the work in this scene, which is fine. Scores are important. But again, like I'm I'm noticing things as opposed to being fully engulfed in the movie and ironically I think in our last episode we were talking about a three hour plus long movie and you were like oh I feel like that's always a personal attack and I was like no 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 it's fine but I pulled this up on Netflix and I was like two hours and 38 minutes come on there are parts of this movie that that drag I'm not like completely engrossed the entire time there are parts where I'm like "Ooh, we could probably tighten this up just just a little bit and so yeah it's it's not huge complaints like I said if it was had to be one of these five this would be my choice I understand why people call it a masterpiece as we'll get to I think there's another masterpiece this year that where I am engaged the whole time and it's just it's like completely working as a piece mm-hmm. but to me yeah there's like spiky bits on this movie that I'm like oh I just want to tamp those down a little bit All right, the nature of cinema yeah <laughs> Oh, Paul Sunday, you jokester. Oh, my God. What a genius. I just like to think about Paul Sunday, what he's up to. Just... What is he up to? Probably skiing, you know. All right. Let's talk about No Country for Old Men. Yes, let's. Let's the start winner. with what it's about. Yes. Bless you. One of the five pictures. We will do that. Yeah. Okay. So No Country for Old Men. I think we said it's a neo-Western. It is. Well, I don't think we did say this, but it is based on a Cormac McCarthy book. Josh Brolin's character is out hunting some sort of creature in the the West. It's like, I don't even remember what it was. It's some weird. It's like a deer or something. Something. And he stumbles upon the aftermath of a drug deal gone wrong. So there's this like circle of cars with a bunch of dead dudes around and a pickup truck full of drugs. And the one guy in the pickup truck is still alive, but has been shot. And the first thing that irked me about this was how coldly he reacted to that almost dead guy who was like, please give me water. And he was like, shut the fuck up. I don't have water. But anyway, he tracks a guy who left the scene on foot, finds him with $2 million in a bag. And even though in the moment he's like, this might come back to haunt me, he takes the $2 million from the scene. And then later that night, 
I guess, realizes that he left a guy to die in the desert and he takes a bottle of water and again is stupidly like, I should not return to the scene of the crime. But he goes back with a bottle of water. The guy's obviously already dead and he gets discovered by these guys who are trying to find the money that is missing from the scene. So Mm -hmm. this intros the other main character of it, who is Anton Sugar, one of the more famous assassins, I guess we will call him, who is played by Javier Bardem in this really weird, like, bowl cut situation. It's a bob. It's a bob. And he has been hired by these guys to track down the money, but then he just shoots the guys, which I find to be a strange move for an assassin. Doesn't seem like there's a lot of money in being the guy that kills your people that hire you. But again, that's just me. And so he is now on the case tracking. Everyone has names that start with J. Tracking Josh Brolin. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so our third main character of this is Tommy Lee Jones, who is the like sheriff of the town. And he is the representative of, you know, the old ways. He's why the movie is called No Country for Old Men. So really the whole thing is very cerebral. It's about times they have a changed. I used to understand the world and now the world is chaos. So anyway, the, the plot of it is Brolin's on the run with the money. Bardem is tracking him. He has this character quirk where he occasionally will use a coin to decide whether or not to kill someone. He flips it and, you know, if they call it wrong, then he kills them. He uses this. What is this thing called? This cattle? I don't know. It's like a air pressure thing that's used to kill cattle. You all know what it looks like. It's pretty iconic at this point. It shoots some projectile into your skull and then pulls it right back out again. And that's how it kills you. But he only uses that for part of it. And then he uses this like, I guess that shotgun is supposed to be like a suppressed shotgun. I find that hard to understand. I don't really know what that is. He has a lot of accessories. Yeah. He's using these iconic weapons. He's he's like you know, showing no emotion and going around killing people. At one point, Woody Harrelson, who is another assassin guy, is hired to by, I think, the same people <laughs> to track down Javier yes. Bardem. Now that Javier Bardem has gone rogue, he goes and meets Josh Brolin and tells him, you should not try to fight Javier Bardem. He will kill you. He kills everything. He has principles. So that also is never really explained. I guess his principles are like, I think he's a man of his word is his principle. So is he, if he says, I'm going to kill you, that's mm-hmm. it. Cool. Then stuff happens. There are like gunfights and fleeing and chases. Josh Brolin ends up getting shot and going to Mexico and getting some medical treatment. Javier Bardem tracks down Woody Harrelson, kills him. He gets on the phone with Josh Brolin and tells him that If he turns himself in, he will not kill his wife. But if he doesn't turn himself in, then he definitely will kill his wife and also him. Josh Brolin does not turn himself in. Then off camera, (laughs) Javier Bardem finds and kills Josh Brolin and gets the money and then goes and finds Josh Brolin's wife and kills her too because he promised. Well, we don't don't 100% know that he killed her. We don't actually see that. It's just implied because he's wiping, you know, potentially blood off of his shoes when he is walking out of the house. The way that that scene plays out is he shows up at her house. She's like, I had a feeling you were going to show up at my house. And then he pulls out his coin and tries to make her call it to see whether or not he's going to kill her. But she refuses to call it, which is her kind of not letting him win 
in their situation. Mm. So yeah, you don't see her call it and then you don't see him kill her. Though I feel like it is implied. But then he, at the very end, gets into a random car accident, leaving her place. And these kids find him and he pays them to help him. And then he walks away. And is the very end of it Tommy Lee Jones with his wife? Yes. Well, he goes, Tommy Lee Jones goes to visit his brother and they have the conversation about how the world has always been chaos. There's mm-hmm. always been this kind of violence. It's, it's not correct to think that this is new and yeah. how the world isn't waiting on him. And then we have the final scene with his wife where he's talking about his dreams. What are your thoughts about No Country for Old Men? So, like, it is, it's less grand. It's less epic than There Will Be Blood, obviously. Um I mean, it's a Coen's movie. It feels like a Coen's movie. I haven't seen all of their films, but the thought I had when I was watching this movie or thinking about it afterwards is I think I just like their comedies better. Like there's the same (laughs) strain of nihilism and like your choices don't matter and the world is chaos that runs through both from what I've seen, their comedies and their dramas. And obviously it's more enjoyable in the comedies because they're funnier, but also I think that's just, more of my worldview of yeah life is absurd you, so there's a like a lot of again Cohen's movies in my experience this sort of again meta narrative about choice and chance right so what is mm-hmm. principle what is the choice that you make does that matter what is random chance and you know it's good I I was interested to see obviously I think the Javier Bardem characters become quite iconic. You know, we talk about cultural significance, things that have lasted from these movies. Like I said, I think there are some scenes and there will be blood, particularly like around the I drink your milkshake scene and the I abandoned my boy, I abandoned my child, which have continued on. Obviously, Anton Chigurh is the culturally iconic thing from this film. But like I mentioned, right, he, he has a lot of accessories. He has that bob. I don't know if he is not like weird guy with a coin and an air gun and a bob if he becomes as iconic of a character and then I don't know how I feel about that well I mean this his thing is just two-faced from Batman like the flipping a coin thing you're like all right I've seen that before <laughs> so yeah the bob and the the cat I wish I keep wanting to call it a cattle prod though it 100% is not that no, I wish I had I'm a name calling it, it an air gun but that's not really what cool. it is either but you yeah. the listener know what we're talking about there's a lot of accoutrement to the character that made the character famous but I don't find myself when I watch the movie actually affected by the character I feel like people talk about how scary he is and mm-hmm. how creepy they found the whole performance and I remember from when I watched it the first time that I had heard people loved him and I, in 2007, was like, I just didn't find him that scary because to me, the fact that he's like, I'm going to flip a coin and kill you if it gets flipped this way and then he does, it's just, there's not any uncertainty to it. And so I was like, okay, he did that. And also I find, not just for him, but for pretty much every character in this movie, I don't understand their motivations. I don't really understand why anyone is doing anything in this movie which makes me struggle to care about it oh i don't know that i had that you don't understand why josh brolin took two million dollars even though he thought it was stupid to do it it's not like they set up that he is having all these financial issues and but they're clearly poor they live in a trailer yeah but i just and it's it's two million dollars the thing is too right the issue isn't the like the nihilism too that's running through this movie which i did think was interesting is it's not that he took the money it's that he went back to give that guy water 
this is like no good deed goes unpunished the movie. And it's also interesting, I think, that so much of Chigurh's success is built on the kindness of others. It's people stopping on the side of the road to help him. It's that yeah. kid being willing to give him his shirt even without the $100, right? The turning point in this film for Josh Brolin's character, and maybe they would have found him regardless, though, but it is, he went back to give them the water, they found his truck, they found his license plate, they knew it was him. Yeah. And if he hadn't done that, this whole movie might not have happened. I, I, I agree with you that that is the intention of it. I don't know that that's how I feel about it. Rewatching it, I just felt at the in the first scene when he discovers the guy like was so cold and clearly didn't care about the guy that then I didn't believe that he would go back to give him the water especially since it's been hours he's definitely dead by now he was bleeding out in the desert (laughs) I understand that you're trying to tell me he's doing a good deed but for me it was like well it's a little late and I don't understand you didn't seem like the kind of guy who actually gave a shit so now I don't understand why you're doing it when you know that it's a dumb thing to do I don't know. I've certainly done things and then thought better of it. Okay. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, it just, I think it's a good movie. I think it's good. I think it's Coen's-y. It's not my favorite Coen's. I've read things that are, you know, this is their masterpiece. I just prefer their comedies. I think their comedies are so funny. I love their comedies. But I agree with you that Bardem's character is not as scary for me as he's hyped up to be. And I think a lot of the film does hinge on that also mm-hmm. and I was just like yeah he's got a lot of stuff yeah I mean part of it for me is I don't really empathize with the plight of the Tommy Lee Jones character who I feel is like the moral center of the mm-hmm. movie the whole you know the world used to make sense and now everything is chaos and the kids used to say sir and ma'am and now they don't anymore which is the thing he literally says in it I'm just like I don't care about that why is that a thing that is supposed to be but i think the film does at the end tell you this is a fantasy that's not (laughs) true i'm left with like who am i supposed to care about it's a very nihilistic movie i don't know that you're supposed to care about anything because it's it's all i mean that's again that's my impression of cohen's brothers it's 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 all meaningless i mean i guess you're right that it that just does different things in a comedy than it does in a drama a a comedy doesn't have to feel meaningful but that is not to say that i don't empathize with or care about the characters in the comedies probably just because characters in comedies are inherently more likable because they're funny but i just found my my overriding emotion or lack thereof watching this movie was that it didn't make me feel anything Mm. which i wanted to feel something Instead of just being like, things are happening for no reason at all. I mean, I will say I didn't start with this, but I should have. It's very well made. I mean, it's it's beautiful. Oh, yeah. Roger Deakin shot it. It's gorgeous to look at. It's obviously well constructed. The actors are good, but I just found it empty to me. There Will Be Blood didn't really make me feel too much either, which is not necessarily necessary for me. <laughs> <laughs> no? Yeah, I think I did find this film thrilling, like the action scenes. And I... I mm-hmm. I don't know how I feel about the choice to just cut the scene where Josh Brolin dies. I haven't made up my mind about that. Yeah. My understanding is the book is really told from the Tommy Lee Jones perspective. And obviously for the adaptation, they decide to follow the action of the Josh Brolin character, which makes sense. And then at the end of the film, after he dies, it really fully flips back to to Tommy Lee Jones's perspective. I don't know if they're trying to, at the end, sort of undercut the glamour of violence, which is always an issue of portraying violence in films right Mm -hmm. by just showing the aftermath of what happens to him I I really don't know how I feel about it it's a choice 
I mean, choices were made. I'm not going to argue about that. I just, I know you say you find it Coen's-y. The stuff that I like about Coen's Brothers movies, I find to not be in this movie. So then I, it doesn't feel like, you're not wrong that there are like threads of nihilism and chaos and stuff in all of their other movies. That's absolutely true. But I think the character stuff that I gravitate to in, yes, mostly their comedies is not a part of this. So that just makes me sad. Mm. But I just want to be watching a different Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> well, yeah. I think in particular, if you don't vibe and fear that Harvey or Bardem character, it's a little like, yeah, okay. All right. So we've talked about all the nominees. As you know mm -hmm. from the beginning and this episode, I said, yes, I would have been mad to all of these movies because there were some things that were not nominated this year that I do feel strongly about. We have three additional films we watched this year. Do we want to start with the one that I think, you know, I think should have won? I think we should because we can just, we can like, quickly talk about all of the rest okay. of them but this will be like our sixth nominee because this yes. is the one you think should have won so i am obviously furious this movie wasn't nominated especially <laughs> after watching michael clayton yep <laughs> and then i'm also angry that this movie did not win and that movie is zodiac which i mm. do think is a masterpiece i think i've only seen zodiac once prior to watching this i've been meaning really? to rewatch it yeah and I loved it just as much. I was like, am I going to, I know what's going to happen. I've seen this film before. I found it just as engrossing. I love all the performances. I love the pacing of the movie. Just as long as there will be blood and another one we're going to talk about that was not Is a it nominee. Is the same exact length? Are there three movies in this? It's two minutes longer. This one's 240. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I find it suspenseful. We have spent many years also talking about the scene in this film where Jake Gyllenhaal goes into a basement. And even more than the first time I watched it, I knew what was going to happen. And I still was yelling at Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> Why are you in that basement? That's such a good scene. Well, I'm going to pause us and we should say what this movie is about before we get too far. So Zodiac is based on a book by a, a former San Francisco Chronicle cartoonist, Robert Graysmith, about the hunt for the Zodiac Killer, who, of course, was a real life serial killer in the, the Bay Area, I guess, in like the 70s. And it's a movie about obsession. It is about the, the Zodiac Killer would send letters to the papers and notes to the investigators about what he was going to do next. And of course, they were trying to find who he was and they never really figured it out. So their prime suspect ended up dying before they could talk to him after they were able to get some, you know, DNA evidence because obviously this is pre. Well, I think the DNA, DNA evidence. evidence exonerates the prime it suspect. Was, it was, <laughs> I think it was inconclusive. There was something odd about it, but yeah, or at least it like wasn't a match. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's about these set of characters and how this search for this killer affects their lives. And again, the main character played by Jake Hall is Robert Graysmith. He's a cartoonist who just gets deeper and deeper and deeper into this mystery. It ends up ruining his marriage and estranging yeah. his children. It ruins the life of most of the people that it touches. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, great cast. So Hall plays Robert Graysmith. Robert Downey Jr., as he's coming back on his upswing, so this is post-Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang, but before he's Iron Man, is Paul Avery, who's the actual crime reporter at the paper. You've got Mark Ruffalo playing Dave Toskey who is a celebrity cop who Bullet and Dirty Harry are real life based upon. Yeah, which is like a celebrity cop. That's a thing of the past. And then the rest of the cast is just rounded out by great character actors. You've got Donald Logue. Donald Logue. You've got Elias Codius. You've got uh, Chloe Sevigny plays Jake Gyllenhaal's uh, wife. Anthony Edwards plays Mark Ruffalo's cop partner. Brian Cox is in it. Yep. John oh, yeah. Carroll Lynch plays the prime suspect, Arthur Lee Allen. 
It's a great cast. And it is directed by David Fincher, we should say. Thank you. And got like no award love. And I can't yeah, I get over it. I will say I also love this movie. This is my second favorite movie of the year. But I'm totally uh, in support of your argument for it. It should have been nominated. Jake Gyllenhaal should have been nominated. A lot of people should have been nominated. I was so delighted by Robert Downey Jr. rewatching this movie. There's a scene where he gets a Halloween card from the Zodiac Killer that contains a bloody piece of uh, cloth from one of the murders and his reaction to it. I watched that scene like seven times in a row. I just kept rewinding <laughs> and I was like, fabulous. As we mentioned, there is a scene where Jake Gyllenhaal, as he's pursuing this case, ends up at this real sketchy guy's house and the guy's like come into the basement to see this thing well, oh no there's this great turn because they think the the whole thing of the zodiac killer hinges upon handwriting analysis which like is honestly kind of bullshit oh, but anyway terrible. they have exonerated their prime suspect based on handwriting analysis and then they have found this new suspect that they think maybe the handwriting matches not 100 percent, but it's the closest he's ever seen i think is what yeah and it's a movie poster that this this person has drawn that they think the suspect has so they think this one guy has drawn this movie poster and the closest they can get to the guy is another guy who used to run the projection at the movie theater that this guy drew the poster for so he goes to this guy's house and they pull out the poster and they're looking at it and jake chillenhall's like yeah, we're really looking for this guy because of his handwriting on this poster and the guy in the whose house he's at is like, he didn't make that poster. He didn't make any posters. I drew all the posters. <laughs> so you're like, oh, shit. It and then he's like, the record. records of the movies we played are in my basement. Come into my basement. And the original time I watched this, I didn't see this movie in the theater. And I was really glad I did because it took me like 20 minutes to get through the scene. I kept <laughs> leaving my room. And just being like, I can't. Why are you in this basement? Never go into someone's basement. Especially when you already suspect them of being a murderer now. And then he, like, they have a conversation and Jake Gyllenhaal bolts out of the basement eventually. And you're like, yes. And then he gets to the door and he can't open it. And this guy has a house with a door that locks from the inside. He has to unlock it with a key. You see him lock it when they come into the house. You're just not on the lookout because you don't yeah. know to be afraid of the guy yet. So he does lock it behind him when they come in. And then when Gyllenhaal is, like, staging his escape, he gets to the door and can't get it open. And then the guy's right behind him in, like, a little mini jump scare. And he has to unlock the door. And so he's, like, leaning up really close to him to unlock the door. But his house locked like that oh the other thing is earlier in the investigation they realized that the zodiac killer must have a basement and apparently most houses in california don't have a basement so the mm -hmm. fact that this guy also has a basement you're like you gotta yeah get out i think he's like they're down in my house. basement and i think jillenhall even says to him like not a lot of basements <laughs> and the guy's just like well i have one and you're like oh my god you're going <laughs> to die that's such a good scene but i think so to be fair as we've said throughout the podcast right some of our experience of these films is our, our own personal taste. All of our experience of these films is our own personal taste. Yes, that's 100% true. When we talked about All the President's Men, right, we talked about how it's this procedural movie. And this film is also very much a procedural movie. It's about mm -hmm. them going through these steps of trying to solve this puzzle. And I think that is just very much to my taste. It's a newsroom movie. But yeah. Oh, I also love the scene where Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr. go out to get a drink for the first time and Jake Gyllenhaal orders this absolutely like ridiculous blue fruity drink. drink you've ever seen. It has an umbrella and Downey Jr. is like, what 
is that? And he's like, if you taste it, you won't make fun of it. And he does taste it. And then they get sloshed on these ridiculous yeah, blue You see them. They just have a million of these <laughs> these cups left over. It's called an aqua velvet or something. I love the scene when they go talk to John Carroll Lynch, who plays the, the main suspect. And yeah. he is like the guiltiest guilty person you've ever seen in your life. The things that they know about the Zodiac that they've pieced together at this point are he wears this particular set of wing walker shoes that you can only get from being in the military. And the only place that they have ever found the name Zodiac, which is a name he gave himself, and the symbol that he gave himself together is on this watch brand that is Zodiac brand watches and it has that symbol. And so they show up and the guy comes in and they show that he's wearing the shoes. He's showing off kind of the watch and and Mark Ruffalo makes him take off the watch so that he can look at it and they're passing it around. He's so confident. Great scene. Because yeah, he has this vibe of like, I'm going to prove, like show you that I'm the guy, but make it so that you cannot prove that I am the guy. <laughs> and John Carroll Lynch just crashes it. What a great really scene. Does. But you know, it's again, it's also a beautiful film. It's a period piece. They did a great job. It's meticulously made. The CGI building of that tower. In- That's super cool. You know, again, like I expected to rewatch it and like it, but not be as engrossed in it again because mm-hmm. I'd seen it before, but it sucked me in entirely. There was never a point where I was like, come on, move it along. Top to bottom. I wouldn't change a thing in this movie. I think it's great. It's great. And even if you don't think it should have won, I don't understand how it doesn't get nominated. It should have been nominated. I don't understand the lack of respect for this movie and the Oscar nominations because it's so goddamn good. All right. Well, yeah. love you, Zodiac. And sure. it that's going to come up again momentarily because it does star our boy Jake Gyllenhaal. It does. This is a year we can actually talk about whether or yeah. not he should have been nominated. <laughs> but there were two other movies that we watched this year. One uh, I suggested because I, I did see this movie in theaters and really loved it. And that's The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which mm-hmm. is an adaptation of a memoir by Jean-Dominique Bobby, who was the editor of Elle magazine in France. He had a stroke, which resulted in him having something called locked-in syndrome, where basically he was fully lucid, but he was also fully paralyzed and could only communicate by blinking one eye as people read out letters. And he dictated his whole memoir using that system. Incredible. Like I said, I saw this movie in the theater. I gross cried through the whole thing in the movie theater. I remember, again, being at the little two-picture theater that we had in town. So this is a really strong sense memory movie for me but I I don't know if you want to start with your thoughts yeah I had not seen this before so I watched it because you had seen it and loved it and it is a beautiful movie it is shot by Janusz Kaminski who's like Spielberg's guy and it's super cool it starts in this awesome immersive way where you are also locked into his body and you're basically looking through his eyes and blinking occasionally like him and Mm -hmm. only seeing things from the perspective of his hospital bed trying to figure out what's going on because he sort of is waking up in a situation where he doesn't know why he is here or what is happening. And the performances are great. It's a super interesting story, though I did I did read behind the scenes stuff about how people are mad about how his girlfriend was portrayed. Yeah. <laughs> they made some changes. Yeah, they made some changes to his life story if in the interests of, you know, narrative structure or whatever. But his his ex-wife, well not ex-wife, his ex-partner who's the mother of his children comes out looking like she was very supportive during his time of need and his his girlfriend at the time 
basically abandons him in the movie, though that is not what happened in real life. So their yeah. actual friends were like, hey, why are you doing her so dirty like that? But great story. So pretty to look at. Love the location of that coastal hospital that they're at. Mm -hmm. So cool. And also just what a triumph of the human spirit <laughs> to dictate a memoir like this. It's incredible. The fact that it's a true story is also great. So I was happy to have watched it. Yeah. So my takeaway after having revisited it, because I, I also haven't watched this one in, in many, many years, was, yeah, it's beautiful. I cried again. I think it could have been nominated. Julian Schnabel was nominated for Best Director. And so it was sort of in the mix. And it, as we mentioned earlier, it did top some people's top 10 lists. But it's an interesting story, but it's not necessarily doing anything too new in terms of its themes or, or what it's trying to convey. I just think it's really well done. And Matthew Amaric is great in the lead role. Yep. I like it a lot. I I can't remember if I mentioned this at the top, but like, yeah, this was 2007 was my year of buying soundtracks. So I also bought the soundtrack and I love the piano theme that is throughout this movie. And weirdly enough, the guy who did it, Paul Cantillon, I think his last name is pronounced, also was heavily involved in the soundtrack for another movie from the Middows that I love, which we will maybe talk about one day. Everything is illuminated. So when I found out he did this one, I was like, oh, this guy, love him. Yeah. I think we did not talk about it, and we should have, though. The yeah. One of the tracks you bought was the Juno soundtrack, which I think everyone bought at yes. the time. That, was, that movie had, like, a cultural moment with its soundtrack, so that deserves to be mentioned. And the third one, we'll touch on this movie briefly later, is the Darjeeling Limited. That was the third soundtrack I bought this year. This was a big mm -hmm. soundtrack year for me. But, yeah, I would recommend this movie to people if you haven't seen it. I don't know that it should supplant any of the other nominees if we're taking out Michael Clayton's and subbing in Zodiac. But Yeah, but very good. And in a world where, as we have now, more than five nominees, I think it probably would have been nominated. Yeah, I think if we were in a 10-nominee system in 2007, it would have gotten a nod. Even if you were in a 10 nominee system, though, I still think Michael Clayton should not have been nominated. I agree with that also. Was <laughs> <laughs> that Okay, yeah. the last movie was one neither of us had seen, but I've been meaning to watch and it was from this year. So I said, hey, why not? And oh boy, it's got a banger of a title. It really does. I also watched it. The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford is the catchy title. I think both of us kind of regretted watching it. <laughs> Yeah, I texted you last night like, oh, I think I'm going to have time to watch this. So if you have time to. And then I got mm, 40 minutes into the movie and I was like, should I text Maddie and be like, well, maybe not. <laughs> but I didn't. So here we are. Yeah, we won't talk about this too much, but I did read a review of it that said it is stylized like a Ken Burns documentary. And oh, boy, is that correct. And as I said to you, I put in my notes not having read that. Why is this movie a documentary? Yeah, there are huge swaths of it that are a narration over blurry kind of slow-mo shots of the characters in the exact way that a documentary would work, where it's like, and then Jesse James, da-da-da, got married and grew up and blah-blah-blah. It's like literally that. <laughs> yeah. And it comes in and out of the movie all the time and you're like where is this coming from is all the rest of it just the most expensive dramatic reenactment of a documentary that you've ever seen why is brad pitt in this documentary it doesn't make any sense but the premise of it so we so we don't fail to tell you that is just it's about jesse james the outlaw train bank robber guy who everyone has heard of and then yeah. robert ford who is the guy that ended up killing him that a lot of people don't know as much about 
And so it's the journey of Robert Ford from basically Jesse James super fan as a child to joining his gang to eventually ending up being the one that kills him. And then after that, how he kind of regrets it. Yeah. Could you believe James Carville was in this movie? I know. That was wild. Honestly, the cast is very good. Um, (laughs) Other than James Carville, not to cast, you know, aspersions on James Carville. But it has Jeremy Renner in it the year before The Hurt Locker. And I vividly remember watching The Hurt Locker and being like, who is this Jeremy Renner character? And how have I not seen him in anything before? Little did I know. There he was. (laughs) And the assassination of Jesse James by the camera driver report. And it is obviously Brad Pitt plays Jesse James. Casey Affleck plays Robert Ford. Sam Rockwell is his brother. Yes. Garrett Dillahunt is in it. It's a lot of recognizable faces. Zoe Deschanel without her bangs. Yes, little Zoe Deschanel. Uh, And then Mary Louise Parker plays Jesse's wife. But it was so long, guys. It was really long. Way more boring than a movie about this subject has any right being. This was also in the 240 range and this... Of the three, this is the one I felt the most like, boy, because the problem with it, right, structurally is we know he's going to kill Jesse James. It's in the title. Yep. So you're kind of just waiting for that to happen. And then as we discussed off mic, when it does happen, it's a little goofy. It is so goofy. I don't want to get talk too much about this movie, but the specific scene where he kills Jesse James, he and his brother, who is Sam Rockwell, are both in the room with Jesse James. It becomes apparent to Jesse that they are going to betray him and it rather than killing them, I guess because they're like at his house and his wife and kids are there and it's against his moral code to kill them. He puts down his gun theatrically on a sofa and then Mm -hmm. walks across the room and is like, boy, this picture of a horse on the wall sure is dusty. And he gets up on a chair to dust off the picture of the horse. Meanwhile, in slow motion behind him, Casey Affleck is pulling out his gun to kill him and Sam Rockwell is leaning his forehead against the wall in agony about the fact that they are about to betray Jesse James. And it's like so melodramatic. It's amazing. Yeah. But it's also beautifully shot. So, yep. I mean, it's beautifully shot because that's another Roger Deakins movie. So all of the stuff in between the weird slow-mo blurry narration stuff is very pretty to look at. (laughs) Yes. If a different editor and writer had taken all of this material, I think they maybe could have crafted an interesting movie out of it. But yeah, I don't I don't think we got this one. I've seen people be like, this is the best movie of the year. And I'm sorry, I'm not with you. Nope. But on to ones we did not rewatch, but are movies that we have watched before and like from this year that just, I think, bear mentioning. As you already said, you bought the soundtrack for it. Darjeeling Limited, a good Wes Anderson movie. Some people don't like it as much as I do. I really like it. And I also had the experience of the movie that came out of his before this was The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, which I mm-hmm. was not a huge fan of. And so then I think part of it was I saw this movie. It felt like a return to form. And I very much was like, he still got it. This is the yeah. movie that proves I still like Wes Anderson. <laughs> so that's tied up in it, too. Right. Um, this is another one, too, where I have a strong memory of seeing it. I think this came out right when we were starting college. So this yes. was an early getting to know new friends. Oh, let's go to the movies kind of um, situation. But I think it's funny. I liked it, too. I like it. I mean, the cast is good. It sounds like a Wes Anderson movie. It looks like a Wes Anderson movie. What's not to like? It also bears mentioning Ratatouille, classic Pixar movie. One best animated picture. Yeah, but like maybe it deserved to be nominated in a 10 nominee system. Uh, Oh, yeah, for sure. Once a little indie that I very much like. I don't think you've seen it. Um, I haven't. 
this one best song, it, Glenn Hansard, it's kind of just this weird little indie that sprung up out of these Irish musicians wanting to make a movie. I think Glenn Hansard wasn't even supposed to be in it. He was writing songs for it. And then the director was like, why don't you just play the lead? And he was like, I am not an actor. <laughs> it happened anyway. That's a very intimate little relationship story. I think you should mention the next one, though I am in accordance with you. Yeah. So again, in the five picture system, should this get nominated? I don't know. But one thing that we've talked about, I don't know, on the podcast before, but certainly in our real lives, is that comedies don't get a lot of play at the Oscars, right? They don't get a lot of recognition. And it's just as hard to make a great comedy as it is to make a great drama. Absolutely. Comedy is really hard. And this is a meticulous comedy that came out in this year, and that is Hot Fuzz, a great movie. And as I've told you before, I know that the categories are tight. I might nominate Timothy Dalton for Best Supporting Actor. I love him so much in this movie. <laughs> He's really great. All right. So that's just a sampling of the many. As we told you, there were many great movies of 2007. And this is mm -hmm. just some of them that we particularly like. Looking back at the top five of the box office, don't really think any of those deserve to be nominated. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, though, to be fair, haven't seen Shrek the Third. Maybe it's a masterpiece. You've seen it, though. I have. It's good. All right. All right. That's about what I expected. And then, as we said, oh, I guess cultural impact, we've said, like, Anton Chigurh, people remember the milkshake scene from There Will Be Blood, people remember. I definitely think Juno has some lasting cultural impact. As we said, yeah. it, it spawned a bunch of movies that did similar things. So absolutely hard to argue with that. I think, honestly, Kira Knightley's dress from Atonement is iconic. Like You're not wrong. It's great. What a great dress. But other than that, I don't I don't know that any of these other movies we mentioned other than Ratatouille had a similar sort of cultural impact. As we said, we looked at a lot of best of the year lists and they were sort of scattershot. A lot of No Country, a lot of There Will Be Bloods, but then there were some... There were some diving bells in the butterfly. There were some diving bells in the butterfly. There was one Born Ultimatum. Love that. Oh, uh, a tiny little movie that we haven't talked about, but that was on a lot of lists is this movie, The Lives of Others, that I very much enjoy. Another, I don't know if we even said The Diamond Bell and the Butterfly is in French, but I was going to say another non-English oh, yeah. language movie. Um, we probably should have mentioned that, but it's true. But yeah, other than that, I, I don't think anything really jumped out as us as something that was on everyone's list, but we haven't talked about. Mm -hmm. So what should have won, I guess, is where we leave ourselves. I think we've made that clear. Yeah, we've set our picks. We have each said, I feel strongly about There Will Be Blood. You feel strongly about Zodiac. And I think that leaves us in a place where we obviously think the Oscars got it wrong. <laughs> I mean, particularly, again, with the nominee list. Yeah. Well, I mean, yes and no. We, we mostly are mad about Michael Clayton. But um, yeah. And the lack of inclusion of Zodiac. Yeah. Sure. Our similar notes. They're two sides of the same coin. But yeah, I don't think we're like super mad about the other four nominees. Um, no. So this takes us to the most important segment of the show. Should Jake Gyllenhaal have been nominated for an Oscar this year? Heck yes. Sure. Why not? He was in a great movie. He gave a great performance in a great movie. Yep. What more do you need to do than great performance yeah. and great movie for a nomination? I don't think he would have won. No, as much as I complained about Daniel Day-Lewis's accent, I think that's an obvious win. Yeah, I mean, that is an, an actor performance, if ever there were one. But yeah, Jakey should be in there. Why not? Add him to the pile. 
I'm sure George Clooney was nominated for Michael Clayton and shouldn't have been. I'm not even looking at the list right now, but like, come on now. <laughs> Let's see who got nominated before we complain too much about George Clooney, who was fine. I'm not saying he was bad. Okay, best actor nominees. Yeah, he was nominated. Johnny Depp in the, the Sweeney Todd. Oh, right. The Sweeney is Todd. the right year? It is. Tommy Lee Jones got nominated for something called In the Valley of Ela. I've heard of that. He was nominated okay. not... Oh, maybe he was supporting for No Country. He was probably supporting for No Country. And Viggo Mortensen for Eastern Promises, which we did not watch, so I can't speak to that. But Eastern Promises. Anyway, there's room for Jake in that category. I know it. I'm, I'm not saying this is Jake's best ever performance. I'm just saying when you give a great no. performance in a great movie, come on. Why not? Yeah. And he's very much the lead of that, that film. Yep. So what have we learned? Anything to add to our theory books about what makes a best picture? I don't I don't know that I've learned anything. Just me neither. Just mad. Maybe I'm too emotionally close to this one. I feel like yeah. I can't stay, take a step back and think about like why specifically there will be blood meets these criteria that make a best picture, whereas no country for old men does not. It's an emotional response. Yeah, for sure. Um all right. He's a well, pretty angry white guy. I was going to say, getting to our patterns category of angry white guys, Daniel Day-Lewis's character is very much an angry white guy, though I think in some different ways than the angry white guys we have seen. It's it's definitely a different kind of toxic masculinity, I think. It's not a real modern no. toxic masculinity. It's like a... It's a period toxic masculinity. <laughs> An oil tycoon. He really does just want family... But he can't let himself get close to people because every time he does, he's burned, you know? Like, as soon as he starts letting his fake brother get close to him, I'm like, this is not going to end well. And then well, it, it's hard, right? Vulnerability is hard. We've talked about it. And capitalism is what allows you to not be connected to people. It's what allows you to not He arrives at using capitalism to disconnect himself from people because he very clearly loves that kid which i think is so fascinating about him because he seems like this guy who is emotionless and doesn't give a shit about anything but he so clearly loves the kid but you're right that he uses capitalism to make himself not have to feel his feelings for his kid so that at the end mm -hmm. he could be like you are my competitor and his son is like i'm so sorry you feel that way but i have to go now and you're like why have you left yourself alone your son loves you and you love your son he has oh we didn't even say he, in that scene at the end, he tells his son, you're not even my son. I found oh, you. Yeah. You were a baby in a basket. And I found you. You're a bastard from a basket or whatever he says. Yeah. And you're just like, Hurtful. he's just trying to hurt his feelings now. Come on. Uh, How weird yeah. is that guy's life? Who's his like butler? The trans or the, oh, the butler. Yeah. I thought we were yeah. talking about the guy who was the interpreter. <laughs> translator. But when he, when he, the, his closest associate, he's like, no, he can stay in the room too. And you're like, that guy doesn't want to be here for this. No, definitely not. I don't want to be here while you have an emotional argument with your son. But yeah, the butler of the house, what a life he has. Because when Daniel Day-Lewis at the end kills Paul Dano and he's collapsed on the floor because it's taken a lot out of him at this point in his life. And the butler comes by and Daniel Day-Lewis is like, I'm finished. <laughs> and the butler is left to just like get rid of that body. Yeah. Bruh. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is a tough year. Like we said, there's a lot of things that could be nominated michael clayton is just a weird choice i don't really understand but it's not like the academy is the only people who did that people were like this is really good and i'm I mean, not I with think part of it is just like it was the time of george right i feel like anything george clooney did was going to get some respect 
And I don't know, just for some reason was an easy choice for people that became part of the like, well, obviously, I guess Michael Clayton's in there. And you're like, don't know why. Well, all right. Well, I feel like I've got it all off my chest. I always yeah. have been looking for an opportunity to rant about how much I love There Will Be Blood. Obviously, I probably could have done that for the length of this podcast, but I'm glad that I did not. And more people should watch Zodiac because it's very yeah. good. It's yeah. And I'm sorry if you haven't seen it, but you listened to this and we spoiled that Jake Gyllenhaal in the basement scene for you. But well, I mean, if you know anything about it, you know that it's based on a book written by that character. So we probably that's didn't. true. But I think you just get caught up in it and you're like, don't. Hey. <laughs> When the guy is like, come back with me to my house, initially they're meeting in a public place. And he's like, yes. okay. And he's like, just follow me to my house. And you're like, don't do that. No. <laughs> if I'm him, I'm like, no, the cafe we plan to meet at is perfectly acceptable. Happy to go to the cafe. All right. What are we talking about next time? Next year, we're taking a jump back Not next in time. year. Next year. The next year we are discussing, two weeks from now on the podcast, is the 34th Academy Awards, the films of 1961. Those nominees in order are, uh, in alphabetical order, are Fanny, The Guns of Navarone, The Hustler, Judgment at Nuremberg, and West Side Story. Topical for the mm -hmm. movie that just recently came out. Have you seen any of these films before, Madeline? I have seen West Side Story. And I know basically nothing about all of the rest of them. I mean, I could give you a guess at the Judgment of Nuremberg, certainly. <laughs> sure. Again, a title that kind of gives things away. Yeah. How about you? I've seen none of these movies. West Side Story Ooh. is a big one of people being like, you haven't seen that? And I'm like, shame, oh. shame on you. Yes. But we'll correct that. Exciting. In the meantime, if you have reactions, if you love No Country for Old Men and want to find a place for you and I to meet and physically fight, send <laughs> us an email at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com and find us on Twitter and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod. New episodes of the podcast come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. 